I'm going to talk um, mainly about some published material that's in the collections at Oxford, uh, in the Bodleian collections at Oxford, um, specifically four rare publications from the early 20th century, which we can say also represent Indian traces on the cultural landscape of Oxford, or at least on the landscape of the Bodleian. In addition to that, they point to something with a much wider-ranging significance, uh, namely the neglected influence of Indian art and literature on the development of modernism in the West and also in East Asia as well. We might call this less of an Indian trace and more of an Indian foundation, especially in the case of uh, Western modernism. So to get to business, first we have a deluxe folio that uh, reproduces some copies in watercolour of probably the most famous historical Buddhist paintings of all, the Ajanta frescoes. These copies were organised by Lady Christiana Herringham and executed with the help of a team of students sent from Calcutta by the important early modernist painter Abhinindranath Tagore. And we'll talk more about that relationship later. Okay, the team sent by Abhinindranath included Nandalal Bose, who maintained a long relationship with the Ajanta frescoes and became one of the world's great high modernists in the uh, post-World War I period. The copies were completed mainly during the winter of 1910 to 11, and they were published in 1915 by a combination of the India Societies of Calcutta and London. Secondly, we have um, some earlier copies of the frescoes that were done by John Griffiths uh, of the Bombay um, School of Art in the 1870s and 1880s. We'll be looking at some of the differences between the styles of the two sets of copies and one earlier set uh, as well. After that, we have um, a collection of photographs also of the Ajanta Caves, also taken between 1910 and 1911 uh, by one Viktor Golubev, a Russian aristocrat who was photographing for Art Asiatica and didn't actually publish the photographs until after World War I due to uh, wartime uh, problems with publications in Paris. Okay, finally, we have a printed booklet containing three um, poems by the Anglo-Sinhalese author and art critic um, Ananda K. Kumaraswamy, who will whose name we'll hear a lot uh, during the talk, with a 1920 woodcut by the sculptor Eric Gill that is very clearly inspired by the frescoes. And I would direct you to the uh, display in the Prosholium to have a, look, have a closer look at those uh, woodcut and the poem itself, which I'll recite at the end. So how to connect these objects and what inference to draw out of the connections? For the benefit of members of the audience who are less familiar with art history, um, it's useful to start with a little bit of background to the Ajanta frescoes themselves, and also to mention the previous attempts to copy them, which were all doomed to disaster of one kind or another. Now, the Ajanta caves are not really caves at all. This is an engraving from uh, the second attempt to copy the frescoes, uh, John Griffith's attempt in the 1870s and 80s. Um, they're actually a complex of Buddhist meeting rooms and meditation halls carved from the living rock between the 2nd century BCE and the 6th century CE. 
They were painted probably by artists who are also ordained members of the monastic community, okay? mainly with scenes from the Jatakas, which for those that don't know are picturesque narratives of Gautama Buddha's previous incarnations. These were probably used as teaching aids by the other monks. Now, it's this idea um, of a working community of artists, artists with a similar religious background or working in the cause of religion and producing religious artifacts that really inspires Eric Gill. It's one of the things that really drives Eric Gill's enthusiasm for uh, Indian art in general. And we'll talk a bit more about his Indian-inspired sculptures and woodcuts later on. Because of the various invasions and political upheavals that characterized the history of the North and the West of India between the 11th and 13th centuries, the Ajanta complex itself was lost to memory for hundreds of years. And it came back to light really again in 1819 when a hunting party chanced upon it while lost. One of the best early descriptions is by Sir Wilmot Herringham, the husband of Christiana. And this was written on their initial visit to the caves in 1906, and it was published alongside the copies of the frescoes in uh, 1915. I will read it out so you can form a picture in your minds alongside the black and white image we have. The caves, he says, are cut in the wide concave sweep of precipitous hillside so that the entrance of the first faces the black mouth of the last, at a distance of some 500 yards. Between the columns of many of the temples are hung great nests of wild bees, which must be carefully humoured to prevent dangerous hostilities. And in the deep recesses, gibbering bats crawl sliding along the rock cornices, unaware that the concentrated stench of their centuries of occupation is their most formidable defence against man's intrusion. In the rains, the river becomes a mighty torrent, but in winter it dwindles to a stream with a few pools in it. Green parrots fly across it in the sunshine. Monkeys, boars, and the occasional panther haunt it. It is a wild and beautiful place. Now the bats, mentioned uh, quite emphatically <laughs> there by Sir Wilmot, um, had already caused some damage to the frescoes, and by the middle of the 19th century, the unfortunate European habit of wanting to take home pieces of other cultures, architecture and art, had contributed further to their destruction. Uh, Major Gill, who started the first series of copies, um, actually lists some of the depredations by tourists to the Ajanta frescoes before he uh, arrived there, including particularly um, chipping off faces from sculptures and uh, taking them home in pockets. <laughs> okay. So the, really the destruction was continuing apace and Robert Gill, who was also a major in the Madras army, was sent to restore and copy the paintings for posterity in the mid-19th uh, century. His efforts at conservation were well-intentioned, but they damaged the frescoes further. I quote from an 1873 memorandum wherein he defends his actions to the Secretary of State for India. I quote, when I made my copies of the paintings, he says, the whole of them were carefully cleaned, washed, and varnished, unquote. 
And, uh, well, his modus operandi was much lamented, actually, by Lady Herringham when she arrived at the site. Um, she was an experienced restorer of Italian frescoes um, herself, and she wrote in the Burlington magazine after her visit the following, I quote, this varnish is now dirty or yellow and has seriously spoiled the pictures. Now, Gill's copies of the frescoes were more successful, though they must be seen in many ways as interpretations rather than copies. In them, he seems to battle against Indian conventions by introducing volumetric shading, um, vanishing point perspective into scenes where the original artist had preferred striking areas of block color and schematic treatments of architecture. Of course, he was also working in oil paint, um, bringing his efforts close in many ways to Van Gogh's attempts to imitate Japanese woodblock printing in this very different medium, yeah? Rather sloppy attempts. Um, in other words, Gill's copies constituted an attempt to alter Indian aesthetics to suit a provincial European taste. Because in Europe at the time, Indian art was not even considered art. If you look at old maps of the layout of the British Museum, it was carefully separated from the fine art galleries containing Greek and Roman exhibits and put into an ethnographic display where it was labeled as of interest only to those hoping to understand Indian religions. Okay. This approach was not continued by Herringham's Edition, and we will see the differences uh, in just a moment. Working on very large canvases, it took Major Gill 18 years to produce 27 facsimiles in oil. The results were exhibited at the Crystal Palace Exhibition in London, where they were unfortunately incinerated in the great fire that broke out in 1866. Now, an uncannily similar fate awaited the second set of copies created in 18, the 1870s and 1880s by John Griffiths. He was um, a teacher of academic painting, yeah, following the uh, European style of academic painting, uh, particularly the Royal Academy syllabus, um, from the Bombay School of Art, and a team of his students. And they were lucky, really, at this point, to be able to make copies at all. Uh, Griffith's superior at the school, one G.W. Terry, was another victim of that European tendency to want to take things home with him. And he'd proposed actually scraping the entire frescoes from the walls of the caves and sending them to the British Museum, where and I quote from his memorandum to the governor of Bombay, he said, quote, all the antiquarian and artistic world would see them, unquote. So there's this idea that they would have to be at the British Museum to actually be seen, okay? Fortunately, the governor was not prepared to fund such a half-baked plan, and Griffith's copies proceeded in a similar fashion to those of his predecessor, Gill including the tendency to Europeanize the motifs by introducing illusionistic techniques such as chiaroscuro into the paintings. Uh, there's a lot more rounding, there's a lot more uh, depthifying, really, that we can see in the Gill, uh, sorry, in the Griffiths versions. Okay, well, these paintings were put on display in South Kensington in 1885, and by a weird 
process of synchronicity, they also burned to a cinder in an accidental fire, broke out in a bakery next door to the South Kensington Museum, quickly spread into the Indian section and destroyed all but about four of the paintings. Okay. You can see two of the small number of surviving canvases at the V&A, where they've been included in the new Buddhism display by my friend uh, Divya Patel. So um, two canvases actually by Griffiths are there. So this third set of copies by Lady Herringham, um, by Lady Herringham's team rather, came about uh, as a result of what we might call an Indian Renaissance that swept not only India itself, but reached from Tokyo on one side of the Eurasian landmass to London on the other end. And it had immensely important implications for the character of global modernism, not just modernism uh, in India. Two of the most important agents for this renaissance on the western end were the painter and author William Rothenstein and Ananda Kumaraswamy himself. Kumaraswamy had come back to England and uh, come to London in 1906 with a concrete and clearly stated intention to improve the European understanding of Asian art by concentrating on artists rather than academics, curators, and archaeologists. Um, in a speech he gave to the, uh, to the uh, Orientalists Conference, actually in Denmark that year, in, actually in 1908, um, he makes the point very strongly. He says, you know, artists are not the ones who are capable of misunderstanding Asian art. It's archaeologists and curators who we have to worry about um, in the way that the narrative that they're proposing. He found um, a ready ear in Will Rothenstein, and the two were responsible for in introducing Jacob Epstein and Eric Gill, the two most progressive sculptors in London at the time, to Buddhist, Jain, and Hindu carving um, as early as 1907. Epstein went ahead, in fact, and based London's first ever modernist sculptures. I'm talking about the 1908 carvings for the British Medical Association on the Strand, directly on iconography and aesthetics drawn from exactly such Indian works, okay? I mean, this, these are a set of sculptures that really begin most um, academic surveys of modernist sculpture in Europe, or in England at least, um, and they are really directly based on Indian carving in terms of iconography and aesthetics both. Gill, whose work is also at the very roots of modernism in London, would later say the following of Kumaraswamy and his tutelage, and this is a quote from uh, one of um, Eric Gill's publications. I dare not confess myself his disciple. That would only embarrass him. Is it, it is absurd to say that he has influenced me. That would imply that his influence has borne fruit. May it be so. So you can see that this Indian Renaissance was really fundamental to the character of modernism in the West, as well as in India itself. Kumaraswamy was also instrumental in arranging for Lady Herringham to mount a full-scale expedition to copy the frescoes, as well as in securing the assistance of a team of artists chosen by Abindranath Tagore. As we will see, this factor was mainly what ensured that the copies were not Europeanized as the earlier ones had been. Kumaraswamy also arranged for Will Rothenstein to meet Tagore in Calcutta 
after going to Ajanta along with Lady Herringham to look at the frescoes. Now, this visit of Rothenstein's in 1910 to 11 was very important for the continued progress of the Indian Renaissance as it was taking place in London. Before going to Ajanta, Rothenstein used the opportunity of staying in Bombay to visit the later carved rock temples at Garapuri on the island of Elephanta. The visit to this and other sculpture sites on the route confirmed his feeling that the techniques and aesthetics of Indian work offered European sculptors a way out of the provincial deadlock of European academic sculpture. And he's really writing to Epstein and Gill constantly and in great excitement throughout this period. In one uncatalogued letter from the Tate Archive, which has never been published before, he says to Gill and Epstein following, I doubt you have ever conceived what rock sculpture is that it should have existed in India centuries ago in order to inspire you both, says Gill and Epstein, was quite obviously preordained and foreseen. I really think you had better come here, if only for a month. It seems to me the one place, the one place a sculptor should come to. You notice he didn't mention Athens, Rome, or Florence in that sentence. Right? Rothenstein himself, did not immediately take to the Ajanta frescoes, but this mainly seems to have been due to their unfamiliarity aesthetically. After a longer exposure to them, he wrote the following to his wife, and I quote uh, from a letter, "'Grow on you they certainly do, "'and the more one looks, the more one can see of them.'" Now, at this time, Victor Golubev also arrived at the caves after Rothenstein, in pursuit of his desire to bring the frescoes to a French-speaking audience via photography. And Rothenstein makes the amused comment to his wife um, that uh, Golubev carries around a full medical kit constantly in panic of an accident or infection. <laughs> we, we should remember they're in, at this point a very remote uh, part of the country. Yeah. Now, the fact that the painted copies made by the 1909-10 expedition were not Europeanized the way the earlier two sets had been was largely due to the fact that the copyists from the Calcutta school had already broken with academic tradition. Okay? This is a revolution that had already occurred in Calcutta, and it was kind of being brought to the copies of the um, Ajanta frescoes by the Calcutta students. The vice-principal at the school, Abhinindranath Tagore, had been experimenting with historical styles of Indian art, such as Mughal and Rajput miniature painting, in an attempt to revitalize contemporary art in the city, while the school's former principal, E.B. Havel, had sold the school's European paintings in order to invest in further Indian works for the students to study rather than the European works that they had previously been able to uh, draw upon. In terms of the style that's being proposed by the students, this is one of the copies by Nandalal Bose, actually. Um, but uh, Lady Herringham as herself, as a member of the Indian Society and as a friend of Kumaraswamy, seems to have encountered few problems, few problems in adapting to the new styles. But Rothenstein, Will Rothenstein, arriving from London, doubtless held back by his academic training, found experimentation with Indian conventions very challenging indeed. 
And I think Abenindranath um, anticipated this resistance to the new aesthetics, actually, in Rothenstein. Um, when he wrote to Rothenstein uh, to invite him to the school at Calcutta um, after his trip to Ajanta, he says the following. I'm, I'm going to quote from Abhinindranath's letter. Uh, Many members of our art society are really anxious to meet you and get your advice regarding the working of this art movement of ours. And Abhinindranath has um, underlined very heavily the words working of this art movement. Okay. So the inference is not too hard to read. Um, Abhinindranath is interested in Rothenstein as an organizer, as a social networker, as a facilitator of publications, and emphatically not Rothenstein as a teacher of technique or art style. However, Rothenstein's sketches and paintings from the 1910 to 11 trip do show evidence of attempts at experimentation based on historical Indian styles. After leaving Ajanta, he made his way to Benares, where he attempted a painting of a crowd scene similar to the ones he had seen um, at the caves. He describes this in one of his letters as, I quote, um, a procession of pilgrims, monks, and ascetics. Now, he called this painting Morning at Benares. It's now lost, unfortunately. And we only have bad uh, quality reproductions, actually, but it comes out looking more like a work by Coro or Pissarro, and Rothenstein was deeply disappointed in himself, really, for not being able to pull in these uh, influences that interested him from the frescoes. He said, he wrote to his wife, I quote from a letter, um, I work with the regularity of a clock, but what I've done I know nothing about. When he left Benares, he added the following lines. I felt sad as I was rowed up the stream for the last time. I saw all the things I should have painted, and I felt how little I had used the privilege of being in such a place. Abhinindranath himself had already assisted the influence of the frescoes in reaching eastwards towards Tokyo. The great Japanese art critic Kakuzo Okakura made an important visit to the Tagore's home just after the turn of the century. As uh, Pathamita has described in his definitive account, um, I direct you towards that. He subsequently invited two of his students, the young artists Yokoyama Taikan and Hishida Shunsho, who made their own trip to Ajanta a year before Lady Herringham's first visit, carrying their impressions back to Japan when they returned. Now, the great modernist painter Mukul Day, um, a later student of Abhinindranath's, visited Taikan in Tokyo in 1916, and he was able to um, observe the influence of the Ajanta frescoes in action. And I quote uh, from an essay um, of his about the meeting. Um, he describes uh, seeing a painting, quote, um, of the beautiful girls of life size with flower hair dressing of the type of the Ajanta cave paintings. And he further notes also that uh, Taikan's technique by 1916, um, quote, resembled that which was employed on our ancient wall paintings of Ajanta bag and other places. 
For his own part, Okakura continued to see Ajanta as forming the roots not only of the Indian painterly tradition, but also of those of China, Southeast Asia, and for and, uh, Japan itself as well. And uh, this provided key leverage, really, in terms of art history for his theories of Pan-Asianism. Bringing the influence of Ajanta to the other side of the map, and I mean the east coast of the USA, fell to Kumaraswamy himself. And his poem, New England Woods, which you can see on display in the cabinet outside, was first published in the New York magazine, The Modern School, in August 1919. And then it was repainted in a special edition on Eric Gill's hand-operated printing press the following year. I mean, Gill was already getting into the monastic way, okay? And it, I mean, the poem and Gill's illustration are really both attempts to express not only the aesthetics, but also the ethics and the approach to an artistic community um, of Buddhist Ajanta, but using forms familiar in the West. So there's a kind of transfer of form, really, into a Western form, but keeping the ethics and the aesthetics of the uh, Indian originals. So this little book is really a quintessentially transcultural object. Yeah. I will end with a reading of a part of the poem which might well have used one of the actual Ajanta frescoes uh, as its illustration. Between the stems a white fawn flits, unclad, unhidden, fearless, gay. She seems to say to me, be still, he only finds who does not seek. My breasts and feet are fair and fine, but not more fragrant than a flower. Do not desire me more than these. As you love trees or clouds, love me, for you may come or stray away. But I, like these, move on forever. I am not changed by love or hate. Thank you.